And thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, I was actually having to brush up on, on Gillian's job title. She is, of course, a, a colleague of mine at the Financial Times, but I realised didn't know what her latest job title was because as far as we're concerned, uh, she's just a legend. She's just Gillian. I mean, you don't just need a job title. She's just this remarkable presence at the Financial Times who tries to keep us all on the straight and narrow and, and help us think more clearly about the world, which is, of course, what her wonderful book, Anthrovision, is all about. I first met uh, Gillian, as, as the first time she, she really impinged on my consciousness in a big way, was during a meeting of the, the editorial board about 15 years ago, probably 2006. Uh, and uh, we were all sitting around, and most of us were economists, and I think all of us were men, and um, but we'd invited Gillian along um, because somebody said she might know some stuff about derivatives or something. And we all sort of sat around as economists, musing and just stroking our chins and figuring out, well, what in principle derivatives might actually um, do and be and what effect they might have. And after, a, after a sort of some considerable time of this, Gillian politely but firmly said, uh, have any of you actually ever seen a derivatives contract? Do you know what's in it? Do you know what it says? Do you know what the small print says? And all of us were like, well, um, yeah, I mean, we just, we just know what one would look like in theory. And it, it was just this, uh, she then very politely but epically proceeded to school all of us about you know, what these things were and why they might just blow up the world financial system. But it's, it's this sort of uh, actually looking at the world and noticing what's going on um, that Gillian is so good at, and that uh, that you too can become good at if you if you read her book, because that I think that process of of paying close attention is really what Anthrovision is all about, and you are in for uh, I think a treat over the next uh, fifty five minutes or so. So Gillian, thank you so much for for coming to play and tell us about your ideas. And, and the first thing I wanted to to ask you about uh, is actually chocolate bars. Uh, so early on in the book, as you know, uh, there's a wonderful story about Kit Kats. And it was so interesting and so engaging. And I, I, the moment I read it, I, I went and told all my children about it. And it's not just because it's about chocolate. There's much more than that. And they lapped it all up. One of them uh, wanted to write a, an essay about it. Um, my nine-year-old son just was clearly just absorbed all of it. And then recently we went on a tour of a chocolate museum and the guide the Chocolate Museum said, does anybody here know uh, where in the world they eat the most Kit Kats? And my son put his hand up and she said, oh, yes, a little boy here. He said, Japan. She looked a little surprised and she said, yes, that's right. And then she said, well, do you, do you know why they eat so many Kit Kats in Japan? And my son stuck his hand up again. And there was this look on her face like, well, he's never going to get this one. And, and my son said, it's because uh, kitakatsu means uh, good luck in Japanese, and it's become a sort of um, message that you give to people with, with, uh, with religious significance before an exam. And the tour guide's jaw just dropped. And I thought, well, I, my son has now, with the power of anthrovision, uh, epically owned a chocolate factory. Uh, why did you want to tell this story? And, and what does it tell us uh, about thinking like an anthropologist? 
Well, thank you so much, Tim, for having me on this podcast or this interview today. It's great to be talking to somebody who I've been admiring for years because of the way that you have put economics and the need to understand statistics so firmly on the public consciousness. And wow, is that incredibly important right now as we're looking to build back better. Um, basically, what I do in anthropology is in many ways complementary to what you do with numbers um, in that I look at the world bottom up. I look at all the messy complexity of cultural patterns and assumptions that shape us all, even though we may not be aware of it. And I look at this thing called culture, which in some ways trying to define it is a bit like trying to chase soap in the bath. It's sort of everywhere, but nowhere. Um, but we all know we're shaped by culture. We all know that there are cultural differences. They don't exist as boxes. They exist as a spectrum of cultural difference. And we all know that they can shift over time. And the reason why the Kit Kat story um, I find so illuminating, apart from the fact that if you write about chocolate, everyone wants to read that, um, even kids, is because it shows two or three things. Firstly, the obvious point that the world is a glorious kaleidoscope of different cultures. And we can never ever make the mistake of assuming that the way we think or react to things is identical to everyone else. Even when that thing in question is something which seems universal like chocolate, but isn't. Secondly, the story shows that actually cultures aren't fixed in stone, they change in time, and they can often change in some really surprising ways. And that is such a liberating, exciting concept to think about, particularly, again, as we try and think, build back better. You know, we may be influenced by what we've inherited, but we're not prisoners to it if we choose to actively rethink culture, which leads to my third um, point, which is that actually, one of the reasons it really pays to look at other cultures and to think about culture is that we can learn and get great ideas from each other, even in some unlikely places. So the point about the KitKat story is that um, KitKat comes from a company created by a Victorian Quaker in Yorkshire in the late 19th century, totally, totally British um, until about 1990, um, in the sense that um, Roundtree and the company launched KitKat as a British business post-World War II, have a break, have a Kit Kat. And it was originally sold around the world as a British export. And then around the turn of the century, some managers in Japan at Nestle, which have bought Roundtree, noticed that sales were exploding in the Southern island of Kyushu because as your son so diligently learned, the word um, kitogatsu in Japanese means good luck or go for it, or we shall overcome. And so teenagers have started a kind of fashion for giving each other Kit Kats during exams as a good luck symbol. And in Japanese Shinto tradition, there is a very strong practice of using good luck charms blessed by a priest at a temple for moments of stress. And what actually happened in Japan was that the Nestle managers noticed this wrinkle. They played into it. They really built on it in their media and marketing campaigns and try to actually use it and develop it and celebrate this kind of cultural innovation, if you like. And within a few short years, um, KitKat had become the second most popular good luck um, quasi-religious token in Japan for exams, second only to an actual um, token blessed by a priest. 
Um, and 50% of Japanese teenagers were taking it into exams with them as a good luck charm. And then out of that came this incredible wave of innovation in Japan, where they took the brown chocolate Kit Kat, turned it every color of the rainbow, gave it flavors like wasabi um, or purple sweet potato um, or Hokkaido cheese flavor, um, and then turned it into a kind of local um, sort of uh, what they call an omiyagi, a souvenir of Japan. So it went from being an English cultural icon to a Japanese cultural icon, and then was exported back into England. And at a moment when there's so much reaction against globalization, when we've all been locked down in our homes during COVID and haven't just had physical entrapment, we've often had social entrapment, we've only been with people like us, and mental entrapment, you know, we've often become quite myopic. I think now is the time to stand up and say, there is value to celebrating cultural difference. There is value to colliding with the unexpected. And there's tremendous value to just to trying to recognize that diversity can often be such an amazing source of innovation that benefits us all. Uh, absolutely, because this is a, this is, as you say, an English uh, invention. Uh, and it has this Japanese spin on it. So it's not as simple as just saying, oh, it's, it's kind of globalization. And neither is it as simple as saying, well, you know, local culture is local culture and that's all there is to it. It's this, it's this mixing of the two together. Um, but a couple of things about the story that really struck me, um, one, one of which is that Nestle's idea for what would be a universal symbol is going to be red, it's going to say Kit Kat, We're going to, it's going to be have a break, it's going to be have a break everywhere because everybody wants a break. Um, that didn't work in Japan. Uh, and it wasn't because the Japanese didn't want to break, as you explained in the book, it's because they didn't think that eating a chocolate bar was much of a break from you know, hours and hours of, 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 of exams. But the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was that Nestle were, were really very insistent on this, on, uh, that their branding would be global. And the Japanese man managers had to kind of go under the radar and kind of work around and obfuscate and... Um, they, they had to work against what they were being told by corporate yeah. centre in order to take advantage of this opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, the story is a complicated one because it also reflects the way that Japanese companies work and also Swiss companies work. Um, but the key message really here is about empathy and it's about having a willingness to try and think out of your own brain, walk in someone else's shoes and see the world differently. And, um, you know, people often ignore that, um, but most people ignore it most of the time. And it's not just about dealing with a culture that's so obviously different as Japanese culture and Swiss culture or English culture. Frankly, exactly the same principle applies to people down the end of your street who may be different from you or the next door department in your office who may be different from you. Um, and if you don't do it, you can end up with terrible mistakes. I mean, the counterpoint to Nestle, two tiny stories. One, Merrill Lynch went into Japan a few years ago and did a consumer survey to work out whether people recognized its famous bull logo. And it was thrilled to see there was really high recognition amongst Japanese consumers. They thought, great, we have a great place to start basically building a business in Japan until they realized that the bull logo for Japanese um, basically was equated with Korean barbecue, not with finance. And that was why it was recognized. Another story, which may be apocryphal, but it's often told inside marketing courses is that Gerber, which is a company that Nestle also built, um, makes baby food, American. 
went to Africa um, and sold baby food tins with pictures of babies on the outside, which is totally, totally normal and common sense for American and European consumers. Um, and then someone pointed out that actually in that part of Africa, there's a tradition of having the pictures of the contents on the tin, not the intended consumer. So putting a picture of a baby on a tin is not what you want to do if you're trying to tell people that you're not engaged in actually eating babies rather than trying to feed them. Um, so that's examples of, you know, cultural difference going wrong because people haven't tried to walk in other people's shoes. Um, but, you know, the Kit Kat story is an example of, of going well. But the other crucial point I want to stress about this is that the story of how Nestle took Kit Kat and completely transformed it is not something that any big data set could possibly have predicted or picked up on. You know, if you were to track the data points of all the ways that people are eating chocolate, you would not have predicted it was going to become a prayer token. Um, and in the same way, if you had the most brilliant AI program in the world, you probably couldn't have predicted it either or played into it either. Um, so one of the messages of the book is that things like big data and statistics and economic models um, are brilliant. I totally celebrate what they can do. They're like these amazing compasses that help us navigate the world, but they need to be complemented with something to give checks and balances and a sense of context. Um, and it's a bit like walking through a dark wood at night in that if you've got a compass in a dark wood, you don't want to throw it away. It's great to have it. But if you walk through and just look down at the dial the whole time and nothing else, you're going to walk into a tree or trip over a tree root. Now, what you need to do is look up and look around and get the context of the compass. And that's really one of the things, one of the many things that anthropology can do um, in terms of just showing the complexity and glorious contradictions and multi-layered nature of our cultural context, which is very hard for big data sets or AI programs um, to pick up. And it's as hard for an AI program to see how culture can change and turn a chocolate bar into a prayer token as it is, say, for an AI program to tell a good joke. Well, speaking of economic models, I was very struck by the fact that you uh, you sort of won over Alan Greenspan, sort of. <laughs> So, yeah. and, and Alan Greenspan, uh, for people who are too young to remember who Alan Greenspan was, Alan Greenspan was basically God as far as uh, central banking was concerned um, through really the, the, the 1990s and early 2000s. He was the, he was the maestro. Um, and then his reputation was somewhat tarnished by the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, while I have to say Gillian's was, was greatly enhanced. But you tell this story about Greenspan sort of sidling up to you at some central bankers conference at some stage and saying that I, I, wanted to, I want to understand this anthropology of which you speak. Can you recommend some books about anthropology? But what quickly became clear is that you and he had a very different view about what he should learn from anthropology. Well, the way, yeah, I mean, the story is that, you know, I, I did a PhD in cultural anthropology. That's how I started my career. Um, and when I first joined the Financial Times, you know, I actually got quite embarrassed about it quite often because I joined the Financial Times as a business and finance journalist and spent, you know, many years working in that field. And if I ever told anyone I had a PhD, they always assumed it must be in economics or um, an MBA or, you know, failing that astrophysics or something like that, because the quantitative 
sciences had so much more credibility than you know soft sciences like anthropology. You know, the feeling was anthropology was a bit hippy dippy, as one banker once told me. Um, and you know, certainly in the run up to two thousand eight crisis, you know, I felt very strongly both a bit wary of telling people about this past, but also felt there was something really going wrong at the very heart of finance because people were believing their own cooking or they were eating, they believed their own Kool-Aid, if you like, which is that they had developed this idea that all this financial innovation had occurred, which was gonna make the world a lot safer. And that it was basically foolproof because there was this theory of financial markets, which went basically, well, if any excesses or dislocations happen, the market's pricing everything perfectly, it's spreading risk across the system, so it will self-correct. And it's a bit like a sort of self-cleaning oven or a self-correcting you know, machine. If something goes wrong in one quarter, it will restabilize, rebalance itself, and it will all be fine. And Alan Greenspan seemed to be um, really someone who epitomized this idea that you don't have to interfere in markets, you don't have to interfere in the financial system, let it run, if it goes crazy for a bit, it will self-correct very quickly. So don't worry about it. It's all about free market forces. And he also really loved models and kept waving his model around. And he sort of symbolized for me what I kind of disagreed with about economics and finance and why I thought the system was going wrong. And then the financial crisis happens. And you know, one of the really telling moments in the aftermath of that was that Alan Greenspan gets hauled up in front of Congress and admits in front of Congress that although he's been viewed as a maestro, the, which is the title of a book, although he was like God in the financial markets, he says, there was a flaw in my thinking. And he didn't really explain what he meant at the time. And he subsequently explained that he realized that in all of his visions of economics and wonderful economic models, he hadn't realized that human incentives, if you like human culture, had a nasty habit of making finance and bankers not behave as rationally as the models implied. Anyway, a few years later, I bumped into him and he and I had met several years earlier and talked about anthropology and he was quite dismissive. Um, and then we met and he actually chased me down a path at a conference and said, you know, I want to read some books about anthropology. Um, I want to understand it. And I thought, wow, I was really impressed. And I'm still impressed because one thing about um, Greenspan is that he does have an ability to try to challenge their views and to rethink them, which is quite rare actually in public life, particularly someone that senior. Um, and he's often done that. When he said there was a flaw in my thinking, he literally was, he was scorned by a lot of people about that, but I thought it was very admirable because he was actually saying something in my thought process went wrong. The problem was though that he thought that studying culture was what most people think and most people think anthropology is about, which is studying weird other people. Um, so, you know, anthropology started off as an effort to try and look at people in far-flung corners of, you know, Micronesia or the Amazon or Africa. Um, and it was seen as the study of the exotic, the other, you know, and frankly, for some people, I dare say in Nestle, to go back to the last example, looking at Japan and how they've changed the meaning of Kit Kat might also seem a bit exotic. Um, but actually that is wrong. Because part of what anthropology does is to study non-Western people who seem different from yourself or you know, anybody who seems different from yourself, depending on whether you come from the West or not. The other half of what anthropology does though is that you flip the lens and look back at yourself 
with an outside pair of eyes. And you realize that everybody looks exotic to someone else. And actually what bankers do looks pretty weird and exotic to people who are non-bankers sometimes. Um, and so in a way, the, cult the idea of studying culture cuts both ways. You try to make the strange familiar and the familiar look strange. And at Greenspan, like many people, was all about trying to make the strange look familiar. He wanted to understand why Greece was behaving, in his view, so weirdly, so strangely, from what he thought was normal. Um, he didn't seem quite so keen to actually fit the lens and try and understand what central bankers were doing and how their culture might be strange too. So one of the ways in which anthropologists do this, which you describe, is, uh, is something called thick description, which I found very intriguing. Um, and one, uh, loads of really fun and, and thought-provoking examples in the book, which you know, people, everyone should get the book. But one example that really um, sort of sprung out at me uh, was this idea, it was this collaborative process to try and build a car uh, at General Motors. And the problem was, it turns out that uh, what a meeting means in Russellheim, where engineers from Opel were based, is different from what a meeting means in Detroit, where engineers from General Motors, the parent company, were based. So talk us through like what, what a meeting can mean to different cultures and why that was causing a problem here. Well, thank you. Well, this is a point which is so incredibly relevant to anyone who's going back to the office in the coming weeks. And you need to think about this um, because the story I tell in the book is General Motors gets three teams together to try and build a joint car. Um, one from Tennessee, one from Detroit, one from Wissenheim in Germany. And it goes horribly badly wrong. And they spend a year arguing with the engineers. And they keep thinking it's because either the science is causing a fight um, or for a while they think it's because of German-US inter-ethnic clashes. And then they realize that actually all three areas, branches of General Motors had subtly different cultures in terms of how they operate. And this wasn't actually General Motors took the very innovative step of keeping an anthropologist actually on its staff who did this kind of research inside the company. Um, but all three areas have different cultures. And most importantly of all, um, although they kept calling meetings to try and fix the problems, the meetings were making things worse because all three groups had different inbuilt and unstated assumptions about what a meeting was. Um, you know, and meeting is like a chocolate bar. You know, we toss it around everywhere. We all think we know what a meeting is. But the reality is it can actually mean different things to different people. Um, sometimes a meeting is seen as somewhere where you just basically rubber stamp a decision. Sometimes it's somewhere where you actually build consensus to make a decision. Sometimes it's somewhere where the leader says this is gonna happen. Sometimes it's a place where everyone shares ideas and fights out issues in a very sort of you know long-winded way. Some people in office cultures actually consider being in a meeting as work and consider it to be work and some people actually think that a meeting isn't actually really work at all you know you do the work and then you have a meeting and rubber stamp something or agree something um, and none of those approaches are necessarily wrong but if you have three bunches of people who come together to hold a meeting to fix something and you start off with a different assumption then actually you're going to have a really difficult meeting and What's really interesting about that is that it shows that, you know, the different cultural differences that matter aren't always between different ethnic groups. 
they can be actually, you know, inside the supposedly same ethnic group. Um, it can occur within the same company. Um, and what really matters is not just the stuff that everyone talks about, the noise, it's a silence, what people don't talk about. And in this case, all the noise was about the engineering, you know, how we, where are we going to put the park route, the park break route cabling, whatever, you know, and the noise was about the fact, well, that, that lot over there, they're German, they speak German, weird, Ugh. you know, or vice versa, they're the Americans. Ugh. Um, that was part of it. The main thing was what people didn't talk about was the fact that actually Detroit and Tennessee had subtly different cultural expectations as well. And nobody ever stopped to ask, okay, we're having a meeting. Do we all think we know what the word meeting means in the same way or not? Silence matters. What people don't talk about is often even more important than what they do talk about. So, so what, what can we do about this? I mean, in this particular case, there was an anthropologist present who you know, recorded the problem and then was sacked in the financial crisis because loads of people were. And she wasn't able to solve the problem. The problem went unsolved and the car was never made. So um, I guess what I'm saying is a great book, but I'm, I'm not inspired by this example. I'm just slightly terrified. It just sounds like <laughs> this, is, this stuff is really hard. Well, what we can do with it um, is take a number of practical steps. Um, first and foremost, recognize the power of culture shock. Culture shock is something we all want to run away from most of the time. You know, it's natural human instinct to go, ooh, this is weird and different and scary. You know, don't take me there. But actually finding a way in whatever way possible to periodically immerse yourself in a different way of thought and life and being, whether physically and geographically, as and when we're ever allowed to travel again, um, or simply, you know, by trying to walk through someone else's shoes around you in the community you're in and try and get to know somebody from different from you, or even just going online and trying to explore a different world online. Embrace a bit of culture shock because it is so powerful, both in terms of learning to gain empathy for another point of view, which is essential in today's world, but also because it allows you to take step two, look back at yourself as if you were a Martian or a child or a stranger who comes from a different culture. Yeah. And when you do that, you can see yourself more clearly. You know, the classic thing, a fish can't see water. Um, so to see yourself, you need to jump out of your fishbowl and look back at yourself. And then try both in whatever community you're looking at outside of yourself and in your own community to not just focus on noise, what we're talking about, but to focus on silence too. What are we not talking about? Some of the clues you can get to focus on silence, to see things you're missing, is to think about rituals and symbols and the use of space that shapes your life. Um, you know, look around your house, look around your world and look at the blank spots in the map or the empty spaces that you ignore. You know, think about your calendar and think about the empty spaces there. Think about, you know, all the things you don't talk about normally. Um, and then when you've done all of that, um, then try to imagine alternatives, imagine differences. Because to go back to the kick-out example, culture isn't fixed. You know, we can change it. We do change it. And if there was ever a moment in the last half century when this message has been not just made so important, but hammered home to us in a very real practical way, it's been the COVID-19 pandemic. Because essentially, we have all collectively just suffered massive culture shock in the sense that we've been tossed out of our routines forced to go home into lockdown, 
forced to reimagine things we take for granted, like who is in our social group, our social boundaries? How do we manage risk? Do we do it with statistics? I mean, as you said, Tim, in your brilliant books um, about you know, how to make the world add up, you've explained about the fact that we need to get better at handling statistics. And I totally agree. But I think we also need to get better at understanding how our risk assessment is shaped by culture. Brilliant anthropologist, Mary Douglas, who talked about that. We've all been forced to think about not just our social boundaries, you know, who's in our, who's in our pod and who isn't. We've had to define who our friends are in a way we haven't done before. We've had to define our values. We've had to define our calendar, our space. And now we're about to do it all over again as we go back. So in a way, COVID-19 has made us all amateur anthropologists by accident, although we don't use that word. So we need to seize that moment. And as we try and build back better, whether it's in our family lives, in our careers, in our companies, in our communities, in our country, we need to seize the fact that we can actually try and change culture we want to, think about culture, and if we don't think about culture, it's very hard to create policies and life strategies that really work. In my personal experience, I haven't traveled as much as, as you, Gillian, but I have traveled a bit. The, the, the culture shock that really hits home is in fact reverse culture shock. You, you, know, you go, to, go to America for a couple of years and you notice all the weird things that Americans do from the point of view of a Brit but a lot of it's kind of fun and exciting because it's new and you're meeting new people. It's all great. Then we go home. Then you notice all the things the Brits do badly that the Americans do well. And there's no, um, there's no sort of compensating excitement or joy. It's just grim. Um, but, uh, but it does, you, you see the things that you have taken for granted because you've mm-hmm. seen somebody else doing it differently. I realize transatlantic is hardly a, a, a major anthropological shift, but it's, it's still there. But I disagree, Tim. I mean, actually, that is exactly the core of anthropology. It's both culture shock and reverse culture shock. And it's about, you know, the anthropological tag is make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And doing that is just so important. And it's particularly important for people who are successful, who rise to the top of their profession or institution, you know, by mastering one particular skill um, and think that they've got the world licked. And actually being able to jump out of yourself and actually look at yourself afresh is just so incredibly important. It's very hard to do. And I know, you know, I often fail to do it. I mean, my book is full of my mistakes and I fail to do it. Um, and you say that, you know, going from England to America and back is not, you know, not proper anthropology. It's not really exotic difference. Actually, going to the next door department in your company or the end of your street um, or even just talking to different generations, that can create a subtle form of cultural shock. I mean, cultures are spectrums of difference, not boxes. And in some ways, the differences which are close to us are the hardest to see because we often ignore them um, and take them for granted. Can I encourage people to uh, drop some uh, questions for us into the, into the Q&A? Um, I, Daisy at 5 by 15 is, is WhatsApping me some of her favorites. Um, and uh, I've got more questions for you, Gillian, but I wanted to put one question to you that, that's already come in, um, which is what, what part does psychology play within the field of anthropology? Or if, if it doesn't play any part, then, then why not? No, it's a really, really great question to ask. Um, and point one 
is that a lot of the ideas found in anthropology are found in other social science, science disciplines and vice versa. Um, you know, a lot of the borders and boundaries in social science are very artificial. And in fact, one of the things I hope happens is that they break down in the coming years and there's more recognition that, again, there's a spectrum of studies of the human condition out there and we put different labels to them, but they're not always that different on one. Insofar as the difference between psychology and anthropology, um, one way to see it is that psychology tends to focus on individual brains, first and foremost. And there's a, there, there is now you know, social psychology, group psychology too, but it tends to start off by looking at the cognition and patterns and processes of one particular brain and then extrapolating more widely. And often does so in a fairly sort of experimental clinical setting where they're basically testing out hypotheses on groups of people. In control. Generally groups of American undergraduate psychology students as well. Well, that was something I was about to come on to. Um, anthropology, just to quickly make the other point, is, is not looking usually at the individual, it's looking at groups and patterns of behavior and how groups interact. Um, and that matters for something like consumer um, behavior because the consumer goods industry and marketing industry in the West has used a lot of psychology, which tends to assume that individuals are individuals operating in isolation. And of course, there's an awful lot of group behavior um, and interactions. And that's for the more how anthropology looks at the world. Um, but the other big difference is that, as you say, Tim, um, anthropologists don't assume that everyone around the world thinks the same way or that brains necessarily work in identical ways. Um, there's a really good anthropologist called Joseph Heinrich, who um, is that more of a physical anthropologist and he studies human evolution, not just culture, or just studies both together. He points out, as you say, that most not most, much of the psychology research done over the past few decades has been done on Western educated university students because those are the nearest subjects to hand. That was the raw material that psychologists could quickly find to do their studies and experiments on. And that's fine, that's great. But as Heinrich explains in his brilliant book um, about the weirdest people in the world, that there actually may be a way, or he believes there is a way, that Western brains work slightly differently from other parts, other cultures, because Western educated people are trained to think in a very linear one-dimensional fashion, um, partly by virtue of literacy that trains us to read an alphabet and to go down the path. Um, and I would argue though, Henry doesn't stress this, actually the nature of computer coding um, actually reinforces that significantly, that you think one directionally and you go off in decision trees, but it's basically unilinear. There is evidence from Henrik's experiments and work that actually other cultures have different approaches. I mean, anyone who grew up with a pictogram way of writing, and I know this from having studied Japanese, tends to have more of a holistic snapshot way of judging situations. Um, Non-literate non cultures often use an even more holistic approach that looks at an entire picture of the patterns and doesn't just zone in with tunnel vision on one area. And the point about that is that um, you can use psychology studies really well, but we be aware that it's probably Western psychology studies, not necessarily universal ones. Well, let, let's move to what another social science can learn from anthropology. Um, and and this, this particular discipline I think you've heard of, uh, economics. Um, we're both some of our best friends are economists. Um, <laughs> so one of the points you make you talk, you've talked a lot in your uh, earlier wonderful book, Fool's Gold, about you know, what anthropology could have told us and did tell us about the financial crisis. But you, 
you have another example in Anthrovision that's intriguing. You talk about Cambridge Analytica and, and the, and in particular, not so much the kind of, well, did they, did they swing the 2016 election for Trump or all of that, but, but more a case of how do they just get all this free data? Where did all this free data come from? And you start exploring the, this business model of not just Facebook, but all of these other companies that are basically offering us free services. Um, that you know, uh, Google, Facebook, Twitter, it's all free. And you argue that the best way to think about that is as barter, or, mm-hmm. a, or a very useful way to think about that is as barter. Um, I'm not sure I agree, but just try and con- convince me and convince us that barter is a useful model for, for thinking about what's going on here. Well, I'd love to know why you don't agree, Tim, because, you know, I'm really keen to debate this. I mean, you know, I think there are three areas where anthropology can be particularly useful for economics. One is recognizing that rational man isn't necessarily quite rational as economists expect because they don't exist as in isolation with perfect information. They're shaped by cultural patterns. Secondly, by recognizing that economic models need to focus on things they used to consider as externalities outside the model, like the environment. Um, and then thirdly, by recognizing that if you want to understand a political economy, you need to look at exchanges and money is not the only exchange out there, only way to organize exchanges out there. Um, and what fascinates me about Cambridge Analytica is I think this is a classic example where there's been the noise dominating debate. And the noise was about really important issues like privacy, political scandal, abuse of political manipulation techniques, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, important noise. The silence, which got almost no attention, was around this idea of free. And when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke, there were a lot of discussions saying, this is outrageous. They've stolen people's data. They've got it for free. They've been abusing people. And that was sort of half true. But what people were ignoring was actually the way that Cambridge Analytica got most of its data, like every single data company out there today, which have not been involved in scandals, really was actually not so much through stealing data or taking something for free, but by a two-way swap. And by that, I mean that consumers were essentially getting free services um, in exchange for giving up data. And they may not have understood that that was what's going on, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but that was basically the exchange that was happening. And the only reason why people use the word free, which is a kind of negative, the absence of money, was because there isn't really a word that grown-up economists and policymakers and techies can turn to in English to describe this. You could call it a swap, but that that sounds like a financial swap. Um, However, there is a word in anthropology, which is barter. And barter is fascinating because economists like Adam Smith assume that barter was something that only primitive primeval people had. You know, you think of cavemen swapping, you know, berries for meat kind of thing. And Adam Smith assumed that when societies got more complex, they would grow up and invent money and then grow up more and invent credit. But there's a really brilliant anthropologist called David Graeber, who sadly died last year, who argued that actually that evolutionary mindset is upside down because the evidence is that actually communities, small communities, you know, however so-called primitive or ancient or whatever, by the way, there are no primitive cultures, I'm just using that in quotation marks to 
um, talk about how people describe this. But you know, all communities have some element of social credit, i.e., debts to each other socially, which bind them together. And um, they often have barter um, too, in the sense that things are being swapped back and forth. And out of that subsequently comes money to express those exchanges. Um, but barter, it doesn't disappear when money comes up always. And what's happened in Silicon Valley is I would argue that barter has exploded in scale. It drives so much of the social media tech world, the swap of data for services. And the reason I think we need to start talking about barter is because um, it is the only way I can think of actually making it clear to consumers and policymakers that this two-way swap is happening on a massive scale. They need to put it into their understandings of how the economy works because it gets ignored. They need to think about what it means for antitrust because in America, up until now, the antitrust measures used by regulators have judged whether monopolies existed on the basis of consumer prices, which doesn't work when you don't have money involved. You need to plug it into investment models if you're trying to work out what 10 companies are worth or not worth, because if much of their transactions are barter, not money, how do you put that on the balance sheet? And you also need to think about it for public policy, because my strong feeling is that most consumers, if they were offered a chance to remediate these transactions with money, they probably wouldn't want to do that because barter is actually quite efficient. Um, in fact, tech companies have offered people the chance to sell their data and buy services with money. And people, for the most part thus far, haven't taken it up. Now that might be inertia, but I think the bigger problem is actually this kind of barter is efficient. We don't want to abolish it necessarily, but what I do think there's a burning need for is to change the terms of trade in this barter trade and give consumers more power by having more transparency, more control about the duration of any kind of barter deal with data and services, and above all else, portability of data. So they have co competition about who they're gonna cut barter deals with. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't have that right now. But that can only happen if you start off by noticing it's a two-way swap and actually start talking, I would say, about barter to actually put it into people's minds. So, so why did you agree, Tim? Do you, do so, you want to start uh, so I, th I think we I think we agree about almost everything except except what oh, the boring. definition of an of an externality is. I'll, 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 but no <laughs> one no one cares about that. We'll talk about that another time. Um, what, so here's a here's a sort of model though. So so let's say some some um, people come up to me and they say uh, we want to um, we want to landscape your garden for you uh, and. That, that would be great. And, and we, we won't charge. And I say, well, that's interesting. So, but why would you do that? And they're like, well, you know, um, there's, there's sort of, there's stuff in the garden that's kind of useful, like, for example, um, firewood that's got, that's got some value. So is it, you know, we can sort of take the stuff, that kind of stuff out of your garden in exchange for landscaping your garden. And I say, well, that's, that sounds okay. Um, and then I later realized that in fact, um, there was oil under the garden and they drilled for oil and they took all the oil away or, or maybe there was buried treasure. But what I'm saying is that I agree it's, it's barter, but I'm not sure that that helps us with the basic problem, which is that people don't really know what it is that they're giving away in exchange for these products. Maybe it helps to call it barter. Maybe that is, maybe that is helpful, but it, well, can I it's, yeah, it's gone. But can I say that? I think you're absolutely right. And actually, well, oddly enough, one of the reasons I think that we should use the word barter. 
Um, you know, one of the quibbles you could have with my use of the word barter is that actually barter is normally associated with direct haggling and deliberate conscious haggling, you know. Um, okay, I'm gonna give you a bowl of berries. How many bits of meat are you gonna give me back? I want more, boom, boom. Um, and most of the barters that are happening right now are not actually being haggled over or discussed at all. People aren't even aware of the fact it's a two-way trade. Um, although I think they are on one level. I think one of the reasons why people didn't all abandon Facebook en masse after Cambridge Analytica was because actually at the end of the day, most people kind of feel, well, I kind of want the free services, you know, um, and I'm willing to tolerate giving up my data for free. Um, although they wouldn't quite articulate it that way. It's also because of lack of data portability. But one of the reasons I think we should call it a barter is we say, right, it's a barter. What are you going to mm -hmm. give up? What are you willing to do? And if you don't like you know, getting your email from this server, you should be able to move to another server with full data portability. And the onus for data portability should be on the tech companies in exactly the same way that in the financial sector, banks are required to make it easy for consumers to swap bank accounts um, in order to have competition. Because that's the way you get competition, which as you know, as undercover economist, is exactly how you get markets to work most effectively. And yeah. if you don't have effective competition with data portability, it's very hard to have a proper market. So you know, I think it'd be very boring on this topic, but it's so relevant right now. Oh, I, I don't, think, any, I don't think anybody's bored, but uh, no, you, I'm, I'm just you, conscious that we've got all kinds of cool questions coming in. I just in, say, I, look at yeah, what's happened with Apple this very yeah. moment and how they're changing terms of service. It's a very live debate right now. Yeah, yeah, very uh, and very interesting that they made it so salient. Like you can you can basically block Facebook. Uh, would you, you like need to, to look wider? You need to look yeah. as an anthropologist at exchanges in the widest possible sense, not just in very macro, narrow macroeconomic terms. And I know Tim, you don't look at economics this way. You have a much you know wider, wiser vision of economics. But you know we've looked at some economists have looked for too long as economics as just this narrow money based. Um, model and that just doesn't capture half what matters in life. But I think I think one thing that you've identified here, which I, I do find very interesting indeed, as it's made me stop and think hard, is this idea that well, consumer harm in an anti-competitive market, consumer harm is measured by rising prices, uh, and if we can't price this stuff because it's barter, then in effect, the price could be going up and up and up. We could be giving away more and more and more in exchange for the services. But because there's no monetary price on it, it can't be measured by the antitrust authorities. You've got me thinking. That's mm. good. That's dangerous. That's, that's, <laughs> well, that's vision for you. No rematch in the FT. Maybe we should have debated the FT instead, so, you know, have a discussion that way. Oh, I think the trouble is, I think we probably now, you've now persuaded me and we now agree too much. Um, I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna, no, gonna, no, 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 that's boring. Tell me, tell me, tell me where I'm um, wrong. I'm I'll argue with you about externalities another time. Instead, and actually not irrelevant, I've got I've got loads of great questions coming in. So let me put some questions from our uh, from, the, from the audience, not me, uh, basically everybody else who's listening to to, to, to you, um, Gillian. So a question that comes in that I know you you feel quite passionately about: um, Does anthropology help us with the challenge of climate change? Absolutely, a thousand percent. You know, for several reasons. Firstly, because at the most basic level, it makes us notice other people. And by golly, did we learn in COVID that if you ignore what's happening on the other side of the world in a weird place that seems exotic to you, like Wuhan, it can come back and hit you. You know, we're linked together in a chain of humanity. And when the weakest link breaks, we often suffer as well. So that's important. 
Um, it's important to talk about ways of actually getting the message around climate change to be communicated to a wider public. And that often requires thinking about cultural patterns and psychology. Um, but it also matters for the most basic reason of all, which is that, you know, if you construct, I, mean, I can actually talk about externalities here and you can educate me while I'm wrong. But, you know, for too long, economists created models and the environment was kind of like outside, external to it. Um, you know, corp companies created balance sheets and environmental risk was like in the footnotes if you were lucky. And if you don't widen the lens and look at context, that can trip you up. And that's exactly what the environmental issues are doing now. And to get super geeky for a second, if you look at how the G7 has just endorsed changes in the accounting system for companies to embrace something called TCFT, um, Task Force of Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, that's a sign that actually even the accountants are now being forced to widen the lens and realize why that lateral vision, which I call anthrovision, actually matters. I'm not gonna argue with you about externalities. I'm gonna, I'm gonna instead instead uh, put another question to you um, from, uh, from Philip Shaw. Uh, our other questions have been anonymous, which is fine. Um, and Philip points out that there's a tension, I'm sure you would recognize between commissioning some deep ethnographic study of what's going on in a, in a business or in a, in a, a culture um, versus just getting rapid answers mm -hmm. um, that chief right. executives need to, to make decisions fast. So what do we do about that tension? It's a big problem because, you know, a lot of anthropologists are purists and say it's not anthropology unless you live somewhere for a year and a half, which you can't do in most policy and corporate contexts. So I've asked a three-point plan. One, if you're looking at a problem, try and see if there's been any academic anthropology done on it already that you can actually use to inform your thoughts in kind of the slow anthropology. Then maybe it's often not that easy to, to digest, but have a look. Two, if, you know, anthropologists need to recognize that sometimes there is merit and value about doing short studies. It's often called ethnographies if it's short in that way. Um, and those can be very useful. Um, they're not as good as academic studies, but they can often offer some really interesting insights. And then three, I would plea with anyone who comes from a social science or anthropology background to be willing to make some compromises to get some of the thoughts into the public debate. Because, you know, if you look at someone like psychology and Danny Kahneman, who's got a brilliant book out right now called Noise, um, you know, the kind of ideas he's popularizing don't necessarily reflect the deep, thoughtful work that's done by academics in psychology, but they are still very useful and can be embraced by many people in contexts that really are important. So I think that's in a way some of the things I hope one day will happen with anthropology, that some of these ideas can be absorbed in public debate. And this fundamental simple idea of um, that, you know, an anthropologist called Genevieve Bell went around Intel in Silicon Valley trying to communicate. Just because it's your worldview, it's not everybody's. That fundamental simple precept, which is a core of anthropology, can absolutely be absorbed in any business and institutional and community context with great value. We've got another question here from Erica. Erica asks, if silences are the most important thing to focus on, what are we not talking about with Build Back Better? Many, many things, um, and I won't give a whole long lecture about this. Um, one thing we're not talking about is debt and the fact that 
that keeps growing and growing and growing across the Western world right now. And eventually, you know, one of several things is going to happen, either raging inflation, um, we could theoretically grow our way out of it, we, I don't think we possibly can, um, or there has to be some kind of renegotiation of terms, some kind of default, or something called financial repression. Um, but that's one of the things that by way of example that we're just not talking about right now at all. And I'm not saying it's necessarily the wrong decision to grow debt, but it has implications that need to be publicly recognized, not just swept under the carpet. You sound like an economist. Have you been hanging out with economists <laughs> yeah. too much? Yeah, exactly. Well, I do work for the Financial Times. Oh, that's okay. one example. There's loads more. I mean, you know, I think AI, what's happening in the development of AI, fascinating. There's, a, you know, the big decisions in AI have been outsourced to a tiny coterie of people, um, the geeks in the corner that we're all ignoring in the same way we ignored the financial um, market geeks before 2008. Um, and that, you know, is something very important. Or if you want a really timely issue right now, and by the way, in the debt category, I'll add pensions and the fact that pension systems are unsustainable. Um, if you want a really timely example, example I would say um, um, microbiotic, uh, sorry, antibiotic resistance, huge issue. We hardly ever talk about it. Really, really, really important. Yeah. Um, a lot of questions have come in um, that I want to sort of try and hopefully not do too much violence to them, but sort of crunch them all together. So many questions have come in, which is that how can anthropology be used to persuade these idiots to not be idiots? How can anthropology be used to convince people to believe such and such a thing? There's sort of a, 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 a strain of thought in the questions that, that suggests anthropology can be used as basically a way to convince people to do things or to, or to, to think in a different way. Just to just impose your worldview on everyone else's. It's a two-way street. The first... The first step towards trying to, um, if you like, convince someone else of your ideas or persuade them to you is actually to open, open your mind to listening to their ideas, make it a two-way exchange. And I guess what I'm really making for is a plea for empathy. And empathy in two ways. Firstly, we live in a world where for far too long, educated people who have control of language, like myself, um, who are elite, you know, and for better or worse, that's how most people describe me, even though I don't feel that way half the time myself, but that's how many other people describe me. You know, we elites have been really bad at trying to understand other people and incredibly arrogant. And that applies to the media, it applies to politicians, it applies to most of the great talking heads. You know, and that's how you end up with things like Brexit, which by the way, I got wrong. Um, I assumed lazily, ignoring the first lesson of anthropology, that, you know, because I thought Brexit was a bad idea, everyone else did. You know, boy, was that a wake up call. And on the back of that, I then went back to America and thought, I'm not gonna repeat the mistake with Donald Trump. I'm gonna spend several months listening and trying to listen to other points of view. And on the back of that, actually became convinced at quite an early stage, and I tell the story in my book, that actually Donald Trump stood a good chance of winning. But you know, we need to lose our arrogance. We need to get some empathy and listen to other people. And we need to recognize you know, our common humanity. And I can't say it strongly enough, you know, our world is so polarized today in so many ways and lockdown has made it worse because we've all been trapped and we, in our small little spaces with myopia. And we were sold the illusion that internet and digital connections would unite us. And in fact, we've taken our tribalism in real life onto the internet and it often gets worse. And one way to start trying to tackle that is to absolutely embrace some anthrovision because I do think that it's gonna benefit us all and be one of the necessary steps to building back better. Thank you, Gillian. 
I've really enjoyed the last hour. We've barely scratched the surface. I wanted to talk to you about your studies in Tajikistan. I wanted to talk to you about um, this idea that the end from Amazon to Amazon. I wanted to ask you about what we learned about uh, COVID uh, by thinking about what happened with Ebola. We haven't got time for any of it. People should buy the book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, You've been wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for your insights and for taking the time to, to talk to us. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And I'll just say, if you can do it with KitKat, that can be a model, not just about the reason why it's not good to eat chocolate and boy, did we need it in lockdown, but it can be a model for hope as well.